Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 65, Non-Human Characters. Recorded Thursday, June 25th of 2015, with your hosts, Grant and Peter. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. Peter, how are you doing? Pretty good. How are you doing this week, Grant? Uh, tired and frustrated and kind of sick feeling. So for podcasting purposes, doing good. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry to hear all of that. Nah, just, you know, it's little stuff. We got any news for listeners? Don't think so. It okay. hasn't really been all that eventful since we got back from the con, which has actually been kind of a good thing. Not podcast-wise, anyway. Yeah. Since we do have a little bit of time here, I do want to take a minute to remind folks that if you're not following us on Facebook, we are on Facebook at facebook.com slash savingthegame, on Twitter at twitter.com slash savingthegame. We're on Google+. You can search for us there. There's no easy link. Uh, and if you're not a member of our Google Plus community, go ahead and uh, join that. It's linked on our website, and the folks there are really awesome. Conversations kind of died down a little bit there. But still full of awesome people who are, you know, more than happy to talk to you about pretty much anything. And then uh, we're also on iTunes and Stitcher. So if you feel so inclined, we would love it if you would rate and review us on those. Yeah. One or both. Yeah, we haven't had a whole lot of iTunes reviews lately. Those really do help get us noticed. Um, it, it doesn't seem like much. Like, you know, well, what's one review going to do? Every single review helps push us up the visibility ladder, as it were. So if you have a few minutes, head out to whatever you use to get your podcasts from and leave us a review there. It helps us enormously. And I'm not asking for a five-star review here. If you think, oh, no, these guys are a two-star or three-star podcast, but you listen anyway because, well, it's a slow week, leave that. Every honest review helps us improve. Trust me. Feedback is good. Absolutely. All right. Shall we get into our scripture? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay, I'll start us off with Genesis here. Okay. This is uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 21. And God created great whales, and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And this is Hebrews 13.2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So our topic tonight is non-human player characters, and we're going to focus on player characters specifically here. Running them as a GM is mostly the same, probably some nuanced differences, but for right now we're just going to focus on the player side of things, if only because we always talk about <laughs> stuff from the GMing side, right? Yeah, we might as well show the players a little bit of love here. Yeah, we're not only a GMing podcast, we promise. So the first question we have to ask is, what makes playing a non-human in a game interesting or fun? Why do it at all? Especially in light of the fact that we're always talking on Saving the Game about using role-playing games with some purpose in mind. Fun being a an important purpose, but also, you know, connecting to other real people, kind of a, a moral practice kind of thing. And can we do that when we're playing something that isn't a person? Well, I'm going to throw this back on you because you're doing that very thing in my GURPS game. Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm not saying I didn't have an answer. Just asking the question why. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we've got four things down here, and I'll be interested to see which one or ones of these things that you uh, 
had in mind for Agiria. All right. So the first one we've got is Emphasis by Contrast. It can be cool to play something exotic kind of for the sake of being exotic. Yeah. I think also sometimes if you're trying to explore a certain concept, just by virtue of being a different kind of character, often you can throw those things into sharp relief. You know, if there's a, a particular concept you want to explore, then having a character who is really focused on that or is very, very different in such a way that it really emphasizes that is a good way to go about it. Yeah. I mean, it can just be fun and cool, and it can be nice as a change of pace, too. Fun is certainly an important part of this. We're going to talk a lot about a lot of different technical considerations for how to make things believable and all that sort of stuff. If you're not having fun with it, the whole thing's moot. Who cares? Yeah. Go have fun with it first, and then look at the other things. And it's perfectly okay to start with a cool idea, and then make that deeper and more interesting instead of saying, well, I have this deep, interesting concept to explore. How can I properly emphasize it by playing something unusual? And how can I not kill myself and my gaming group with pretension as I'm doing this? Right. <laughs> a certain amount of pretension is fine. We have a podcast about role-playing games. Trust this me. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> but the fun is important. Yeah. So there's a few types of non-humans that we could conceivably list. I kind of want to focus on the far end of the spectrum. Okay, but I think it'd probably be good to go through the, the whole thing just to kind of, for completeness sake. So there's everything that was once a human. Sure. So you got your cyborgs, your intelligent undead, uh, mutants, uh, various post-human things in science fiction. Yeah, definitely. And then you've got things that are human, but not quite. You're Star Trek alien. You're Elf, yeah, you're, you're elves dwarf, and dwarves. You're, you're gnome. They're humans. I mean, it doesn't take a lot to go, well, I'm basically human. Yeah, okay, yeah. I'm, sh I'm shorter, stouter, and more stereotypically Scottish than the average. I must yeah. be a dwarf. And I've. I have much more unruly facial hair. <laughs> yeah. Or I have pointy ears and I live for thousands of years in the forest. Yeah. I don't know why Scottish is the default for dwarves. It, it must come from some movie somewhere, but Lord of the Rings was not the first one to default to that. I have heard that it's actually a fairly recent thing, and we owe it to uh, Warcraft. Uh, I'm not sure I believe that. No, I can I'm pretty sure I heard Scottish dwarves before Warcraft was a thing, but yeah, it, it I could, could be, be wrong, a, too. It could be a video game thing, but I, I could see the Warcraft thing, because we all played a lot of that. Yeah. Hmm. And those dwarves were very, very Scottish. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe a, like, Baldur's Gate or something. Could be. Hmm. Anyway, any of those things, those are basically humans. You'll want to take some of these thoughts into consideration. In many cases, if you're playing a game, this stuff has been set out for you already, but give it some thought. Then we're getting into the more interesting stuff. Yeah. Anthropomorphized, but clearly non-human creatures. And here we're talking the Disney-esque fox walking around on its hind legs with its... Or even the um, the Rescue Aid Society mice and stuff from the Rescuers movies. Sure. Any of your traditional fantasy beast folk, anything like that, where it's, it's clearly human-like, but it is also visibly impossible to confuse with a human, and should generally not really act like a human. The, the Disney-style thing is kind of a special case if you're in a everything is animals world. But if 
you know, you've got your average human working alongside a average upright six foot rabbit who wears clothes. What's different? I mean, is the humor in that it's perfectly normal? Okay, fine. Otherwise, this is wild and crazy. You'll need to put some thought into it. Androids, golems, and other artificial things, I think, really fall into this category. Yeah, I would put C-3PO and Data into this in particular. And you were asking where my artificial intelligence character falls in. This is kind of where it falls into these categories, because it's clearly non-human. It in no way presents itself as human, except that it has certain human traits that it really tries to play up. Right. This is things that aren't human, but are concerned with the human experience in some ways, or at least sometimes, I should say. Right. This is what puts Data and your player character in the GURPS game in this category, as opposed to the, well, the last one that we'll get to. At the far end of this scale, there's the barely anthropomorphized creatures, where you're essentially playing animals. Uh, Werewolf, you could play humans who became werewolves, or wolves who became werewolves. And if you were playing the wolf who became a werewolf, you were supposed to have this very wolfy sort of perspective on things. Yeah, this is the Crimson Fangs and the Geta Fenris from Werewolf the Apocalypse, right? Um, Pretty sure those are the two clans? uh, It's not a clan thing. It's a a thing across all the clans where they all Yeah, I I know it is, but but I think think those two were either... Yeah, those were the ones that I think really drew from it. I didn't play much werewolf. My wife had a werewolf character in our mage game. That's all I remember. I played much of it. I've read some of the books, though, and I'm just trying to remember what. That's fair. Honestly, I think the best example of this is probably Bunnies and Burrows, which is essentially a watership down RPG. Yeah, where you're playing regular rabbits that happen to think like humans, sort of, but still have all the rabbit fear and stuff. Yeah, maybe a little more relatable. The Rats of Nim. You've got creatures dealing with creature problems. My house that I've made in this cinder block is going to be destroyed. Well, I've got to deal with that. Or the cat is coming. Yeah. On the really anthropomorphized end of things, who cares about the cat? You're a walking, talking dog who's going to work in a suit and tie. But when you're playing essentially animals with kind of human character, the cat's a big deal. Or the owl. Or Yeah, and I mean, this can be... The hyenas. Mouse guardy territory, kind of between the last category and this one. Where it's like, you're the size of a mouse... Um, you're as vulnerable as a mouse. Your world is full of snakes and badgers and other things that can just mop the floor with you. Yeah. But you're trying to maintain a society. It might be as simple as, is there tool use or not? Yeah. You know, there's a big break between those sets of characters. And I think opposable thumbs or not, and bipedal stature or not. Yeah. To get away from that for a little bit, you've got dualistic characters. We talked about werewolves before. Yeah, I would also throw Jekyll and Hyde characters into here. Um, If you want to get a little more controversial, things that are sharing the same body. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you've got some kind of a weird possessing entity or something like that, that would certainly apply here. Yeah, that's mostly going to probably be the human-like non-human, but in the case when they really let that other come out, you're going to switch to the other pretty sharply, and the, the contrast between those is part of the fun of the character that you're playing or the story that you're telling. So right, worth thinking about because you're going to be kind of doing both of these things, and the bleed between the two is something you'll want to explore. And lastly, my favorite end of things, the completely inhuman side of things. You know, your, your extraterrestrials that 
have no concept of human history, morality, etc. Completely artificial creatures. Dragons, tree folk, um, living rocks. Um, yep. You know that story in in every generic fantasy world where the dwarf went up and spoke to the stone? The stone would be this end of things. Oh, yeah. Extra planar things like demons and devils in D&D, you know, those are tend to be a little more human-ish, but if you really want to play up that inhuman nature, that's a great way to go about it. Well, I mean, to be a little controversial here, heck, even the way angels are sometimes described in scripture. I, I think that's probably less controversial, honestly, because that's kind of the whole point, is that these are something other. Every time an angel appears, the first words that they speak is, do not be afraid. Yeah, because the first reaction is pants-wetting terror. Or some sort of fear, absolutely. Fear yeah. and awe. There's a, a wonderful description from C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy of when an angel shows up. Uh, and it doesn't show up to, you know, do anything except deliver information. It's a messenger. This character's meeting with kind of people in the know, and all of a sudden this angel shows up. And they are at first convinced that this pillar of light that appears is off-center, like it's not oriented correctly. And then their perspective shifts, because it has to, the, the presence is so overwhelming, and they realize that the entire universe that they have lived in is off-center, and this thing is the only thing perfectly oriented to the proper way that the universe is and should be. It's the only thing that knows which way is up and down in the universe. And so it's this idea that it's so fundamental and elemental, everything else is off-kilter because only this thing is right. It's this really cool description. I'm really not doing it justice, but it's this idea that all of a sudden your perspective has to break down when you huh. see something like this because it's from something else and it's so much more. It's kind of the, the good end of Lovecraft's character's reaction to the, the things it's that he writes about. It's a very similar overwhelming kind of response. Yes. You know, instead of you know, the horror of the absence of God that kind of suffuses Lovecraft, you have all of a sudden this... The wonder of the presence of God? <laughs> well, or, or of a messenger where it's, oh, wow, uh, okay, everything just reoriented around this more fundamental thing. It's very cool. That's the kind of reaction that you could really go for here. Now, that's a very powerful creature. If you're playing at that level, hey, cool, but... Similar disorienting reactions would be great for your really utterly inhuman characters because it's that idea of, wow, you're not at all what I'm used to. You're nothing that I know about. That's great. Yeah. And that brings us to the kind of stuff that you need to look at to roleplay one of these creatures effectively. So here's the first question I want to post for anybody thinking about a character like this. Anything that isn't relatably human. How is this thing like a human, or the humanity that we all know, how, how does it relate to that humanity? How much of that is there? And it's not just a quantity thing, but it's also which particular qualities. Let's go ahead and use Agiria as the example for this, because I think okay. she's a she's a very that. convenient one. So let me recap real quick. Agiria is a character that I am playing in our very off-again, on-again, GURPS, sci-fi, little bit yeah. XCOM-y kind of game. Yeah, the, the GURPS game that happens when we're not all busy adulting, which unfortunately is about 90% of the time these days. Yeah, it took a year-long break. Yeah. <laughs> it was one of those. It's just whenever we can pull it off. But 
yeah, so Agiri is my character in that, and this is a artificial intelligence who exists in a large bank of servers on a boat somewhere and has different tools to interact with the world when the rest of the team that she's with is going on missions. And so when we're talking about an artificial intelligence, this can be creepily inhuman or pretty much indistinguishable from a human. And I'm going for a little more on the human side of things, probably more on the human side of things, because there's a lot of friendly conversation. Yeah. With the group of friends we have, we're not going to not joke with each other, so we can do that sort of thing. I'm I'm going for this warm human female voice rather than this cold artificial other. This is much more Edie than Hal. Uh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. A lot of that is playing up the human characteristics, especially in the voice, because a lot of times she's just talking to people through headsets or cybernetic equivalent. When she has a visual appearance, you know, on a monitor and a holographic projector or anything like that, it's a humanoid projection, Cortana with clothes. Yeah, specifically Roman garb, right? Uh, yeah, but that's just characterization. But that, that idea of connecting to human history is definitely some of it. Going after relatable human... Touchstones? Uh, touchstones, yeah, that's a good word for it. They have a, a certain symbolism and they get certain responses, but those are human responses that the character is trying to play off of. And I, as the player, am trying to set up for the other characters to react to. Now, of course, there's also a lot of differences. For example, when she appears, she's never appearing as human, even on a monitor. Even when she shows up on a computer screen, there's no... There's no mistaking her for an actual human. Right. We're talking about a blue-skinned construct. Like, it is very obviously a construct. She's working in multiple places at once, and that's a big difference, is she can multitask in ways that humans simply cannot. Yeah, and this is getting into how is she different from the humanity we know, by the way. Right. That ability to truly multitask, to be working in multiple places simultaneously, especially through various different remote agents, matters a lot. I could very easily say, yeah, I'm going to take control of this little uh, flying drone thing and go scout around, you know, send that out and then get it to report back. And while you're doing that, screw up the credit card processing for the FBI agents at the airport? Yeah, things like that. Which is something that actually happened in-game? Yeah, I was kind of proud of that one. It was a nice non-hostile way to slow down a third party who we didn't want investigating. It worked out great. Yeah. In the grand scheme of things, this is not unrelatably human. These are things that we could kind of want to do in some cases. You know, we've all used forum avatars before. The idea of having an avatar that doesn't look human is perfectly normal at this point. Well, and having an online identity that isn't the same as your physical world one is pretty normal, too. Although yeah. I still find it strange when somebody walks up and calls me time spike to my face in physical space. That's That still strikes me as weird. Really? I got used to it very quickly. Although I've kind of dumped my old moniker in favor of the STG Grant one because I'm trying to emphasize the podcast. And yeah. it helps having one noticeable identity. So there you go. Anyway, you've got to really look at the things that make this character different. And I would say play those up some. Uh, and I've not done that with Agiria, but we've also only had, like, two, three sessions, so yeah. not a lot of time you'll, for that you'll yet. You'll get a chance to, it just hasn't happened yet. Yeah. And then you've got to say, what has made this character the way it is? Now, this could be anything from an artificial intelligence that has been created to an artificial intelligence that 
somebody else created and you guys have booted up and is now running rampant through cyberspace because it's alien. It could be an alien creature that just evolved that way. It could be something that was created wholesale. There's also a less cosmic approach to it, which is how did they come to be this particular character? And this is no different from any other character, but it's how did this character get these particular traits that make it unique in the world? My character's terrified of lightning. Yeah, because it's a server farm. It's a server farm. And yeah, you know, it's well protected. I'm well protected in my car against lightning. I'm well protected in my office building against lightning. That doesn't make me any less terrified of lightning and thunder. Okay? Likewise, this artificial intelligence is well protected against lightning. Boats have to be because they're, by their very nature, the tallest thing on the ocean. At least in calm seas. Yeah. So... You know, that's something that every large ship has to deal with. But that doesn't make it any less terrifying, and I'm going to kind of react to that. And that's a, a fun thing that, you know, this is not inherent to the character, but I thought it was a cool approach and something a little humanizing. This idea that, you know, we're all terrified of lightning strikes nearby, even the little cybernetic drone. Yeah. And then we have how does the character feel about their place in the world, which is a little more philosophical. And this is a lot of character motivation, but how do they feel about other creatures? If they are the only outstanding, different creature, like, you know, as far as we know, there's only one artificial intelligence like Agiria, how do they feel about the rest of humanity? If there's a whole bunch of things like dwarves, then we're going to get into the, well, how do the dwarves feel about the elves and the humans and that sort of thing? And often that's well established, or it's easy to establish, but you'll still want to give it a little bit of thought because... Maybe you want it to be different in some cases and perfectly in line with the stereotypes in others. Well, and that's the answers for that are often thought of as kind of, uh, I don't know, predetermined, but they really aren't. If you look at the difference between the way that humans, elves and dwarves relate to each other in the works of J.R.R. Tolkien and then compare that to the way that they interrelate with each other in the works of uh, Andrew Sapkowski, the guy who wrote the Witcher novels, that's radically different. There's kind of a friendly rivalry between Legolas and Gimli in Lord of the Rings, but they are absolutely on the same side and they are friends even. Um, the Witcher setting has a huge amount of racism and like ancient prejudice and all kinds of awful stuff in there that really informs the way that those different species get along or don't is the case mm -hmm. often is and then when you do have characters that kind of defy those social conventions they are noticeable in contrast right everybody kind of makes fun of drist for example uh because it's kind of spawned all of these well imitators Drist's clone characters <laughs> all over the place but the idea of this character that throws off the stereotypes and evil ideals that have held down the rest of his culture and he goes searching for something better is certainly a powerful and interesting archetype. You know, there's no problem with the character except for all the people who are trying to remake that character and swoon over it, not do their own interesting thing. Right. You know, the character itself is really quite good, at least as far as anything written in the Forgotten Realms is good. One of my former players back in the day played a character who had a lot of evil stuff in his bloodline. Um, he had, like, some infernal stuff and some evil dragons and that sort of thing. And so he had, he kind of came from, like, this 
tainted ancestry. We ran into a bunch of his living relatives around the world that were mixed up in various nefarious things. And his decisions about why he wasn't that way and how he dealt with the, the other members of his family who were and stuff were really interesting. So you can still take that, well, I come from this, you know, dark heritage thing and not just make it a copy of somebody else's work. You just have to work at it a little bit. And he did. Yeah. And then we get into what I think is the most interesting question. How does the unique nature of this character inform its perspective on the world and what it can do in the world? Great example of this, and we've brought this up before. Angua from Discworld, right? The uh, the werewolf character, well, one of the werewolf characters in there. Terry Pratchett spends a lot of time talking about what Angua can smell. Because when Angua is a werewolf, smell is the primary sense through which she interacts with the world. And it's a sense that we as humans really don't have to the same degree as a dog or a wolf. And Sir Terry Pratchett did a wonderful job of laying out how that would really change what somebody does and what they can do, especially when they're investigating something. Yeah, there's some great scenes where he kind of describes the smells as being different colors and she could tell, you know, what happened and how long it went on and how long somebody lingered in a certain spot. And it was, oh yeah, it was real interesting great stuff. Biological differences of all sorts are things that you really want to focus on. Two of my favorite examples of this are from Mass Effect, actually. You've got the Salarians who their lifespan tops out at like 40 years. And so every time you interact with a Salarian, they talk really fast. They have this kind of, um, they're, they're coordinated, but it's, it's their, their movements seem a little more sudden. They always seem kind of nervous and stuff because they're, they're processing everything so much more quickly than other longer-lived species are. They make very good covert agents and spies and stuff for that reason because they can process things very quickly. And then kind of on the other end of the spectrum are these huge lumbering aliens that talk in a deadpan voice called the Elcor. And they can't express inflection like other species can, so they will tell you up front. They will say, joyfully, I just got a raise today, or something like that. And that makes right. them very interesting, too. They're a little bit humorous, but the difference between, you know, them and the other species on just that level really draws a lot more contrast in the fact that this is a huge gray, kind of gorilla-y looking thing that walks on its front you know, limbs and stuff ever would, because it's not just something that acts like a human, but, you know, looks different and could basically be piloting around an Elcor shaped piece of armor. They actually seem like a different creature with different habits and different society and stuff. So that's that's very cool. Yeah. And needs are another big piece of this. Um, I, I want to say that this comes up somewhat in Mass Effect as well. Uh, the Krogan have a real need to try and fix genetic damage that's been done to them. You know, that's a very existential problem. There are other much more basic needs that characters might have. You might have a character who simply needs sunlight, you know, if it's a walking, talking plant. Or needs there to not be sunlight in the case of a vampire. Sure. It may be it needs a host of some sort. It may need, to use the vampire example, for it to go into a house, it may need to be invited in. And that's a simple thing, but you can really use that in-game to play up, hey, this is not your average humanoid character. There are weird limitations that this character has by virtue of being other. And that works great. Egeria kind of has this problem 
she can't go ride to the rescue if the rest of the party is in trouble. Well, and here's another example of her limitations that hasn't come up. If the party winds up having to do something for a long time in the Green Bank quiet zone where you can't have radio signals, she's going to have a real problem communicating with them. Yeah, exactly. Because she's only got radio and she's only got drones like, you know, military drones or slightly more advanced pretend drones like little spider drones like from, um, what am I thinking, uh, Minority Report. Yeah. The little things that you unroll and they crawl around and check people's eyes. You remember that scene? Yeah. Little creatures like that. Those are the only ways that she can interact with the world in the same way that the party does. And even then, it's distinct. So if the party doesn't get a chance to open a drone and start it up, Nagiria's just stuck talking to them. Yeah, and I mean, she can see the the feeds from their camera implants and stuff, but yeah, she can't interact with the physical world at all unless they help her. Exactly. And that was a, a limitation that I specifically bought into going into this game because I thought that was a neat idea and also eh, I wanted to try something but that's a, a unique need that you don't generally have when you're playing a human or an elf yeah I'm, I'm picking on elves here but it's that same concept of we're all basically human this is something that is very much not basically human and that's the whole point now there are things that these characters can do which no one else can and I think this is probably the biggest draw for playing a character like this Aside from maybe the cool factor. Yeah. Well, I mean, Igeria is probably the coolest handler any group of covert agents has ever had. Certainly, there are things that she can do like, you know, hack a bank account or disable a credit card real quick that the rest of the party can't do. And that's awesome. If I'm playing a wolf, probably no one else has the sense of smell or the ability to run at high speeds for a long period of time. That a wolf does. Or here into um, ultrasonic frequencies or, you know, there's there's a couple other things that a lot of animals can do that we can't do. On the flip side, what can't the character do, which everyone else can do? Years ago, my friends and I came up with the worst party ever. This was a group of characters designed for a D&D or D&D-like game many of which did not, strictly speaking, adhere to the rules of D&D 3.5, but we kind of didn't care because the whole point was to make the least cohesive party possible. Okay. It was the worst party ever, the maximum amount of dysfunction possible within a group, because the idea was, wouldn't that be fun to play? And the answer is, of course, absolutely. I mean, that's a fiasco session right there, right. you know? And one of my the characters, I really, I think the first character that I came up with for this was a awakened raptor like the dinosaur this is when i was really heavily into eberron where of course there are dinosaurs in one particular part of the setting and halflings ride them because halflings are nomadic barbarians riding dinosaurs one of many reasons eberron is awesome yeah one of many reasons why keith baker the guy who created eberron is awesome for that matter so the idea was well wouldn't it be cool to have an awakened dinosaur and the answer of course is yes obviously that's awesome I gave it all this combat ability and this, you know, intelligence. The idea was it was very intelligent. Um, it had a human who wrote it who was incredibly dumb, just the dumbest possible barbarian. Uh, I figured basically if he didn't have an int of four or less, it wasn't the right character. <laughs> so the so the mount is the brains of the operation, basically. Yeah, yeah. And the idea was this was going to be like a frothing berserker, so the 
mount would have the ride skill and would basically thrust the barbarian rider in the way of anything that, you know, tried to shoot at it or hit it or anything like that. Because, well, listen, the barbarian can take it a lot more than the dinosaur can. He's designed <laughs> to. Again, playing around with the rules and just having fun. The one skill point that the barbarian had at every level was going to go into perform heroic epic. Okay. But you know what this character can't do? Hmm. You know what this raptor can't do? He can't open doors, Jurassic Park notwithstanding. Uh, okay. That level of basic interaction with the human world was going to be missing, and that was one of the reasons that this intelligent raptor would suffer to have this stinky, terrible, loud, violent barbarian halfling riding around it all the time, because it can open doors with much cajoling and promises of hunting later and that sort of thing. But it's the the idea that here's this very intelligent creature stuck in a terrible, terrifying body with no hands. There are things that this character can do which nobody else. Why could am do. I picturing this raptor with a British accent? Um, more violent New York accent actually. But yeah, either works. It's not a refined character. It's just pretty smart. Gotcha. But it can't open doors. <laughs> it can't use utensils. It can't. So. Walk down the street. This is without Daniel causing Day Lewis's character from Gangs of New York, but a but kinda. a raptor. Yeah, kinda. Just that that idea of there are plenty of things that this character can do which are awesome, and there are basic things that this character cannot do that the rest of the party has to help it with. We talked about some of these problems that Agiria has. It's the same idea. Those limitations are just as interesting, maybe more interesting than the things that make your character cool and awesome. The things which you fall down and struggle with are where a lot of the story comes from. The cool awesome is how you resolve that story. Well, but it's it's not the source of For just of a it. real quick little anecdote, you know what comes to mind here? It's the T-Rex from Meet the Robinsons. Why are you not seizing the boy? I have a big head and little arms. Uh, we never saw that movie. Chrissy and I quote the, that line all the time. Yeah. Uh, Chrissy has a workout shirt that is a T-Rex trying to do push-ups, and it's the T-Rex looking sad while it's propped up on its head and legs. <laughs> with its little arms dangling down, <laughs> trying to reach the floor. And it's it's kind of adorable, and also like, oh, poor T-Rex. It can't work out like Chrissy can. You yeah. Know? <laughs> that happens. So that basic idea, I think, is something that you really want to play up. You can really munchkin it and try and find ways around it, but I think if you step boldly forward and grab that weakness and problem with both hands and say, look, here's a cool thing that gets me story time and lets me interact with the other characters in the party in a cooperative way. Hey, that's awesome. Well, and I think if Aguirre was out in a, a state-of-the-art robot body instead of interacting through satellites, drones, and comlinks, she would just be this overpowering force that nobody else in the party could, you know, she would basically obviate the rest of the party. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's you, there's always a give and take, yeah. right? But I, I, think, I think the give is important because if you're, if you're trying to take everything and, you know, this this goes exactly to what you were saying. I'm agreeing with you here. But if you're not giving anything in your exotic character aspects, well, then all you're doing is taking. And in this case, you're taking the fun and the spotlight time of the rest of the people at the table. I think you're absolutely right. And kind of related to that, that idea of everyone else at the table, there's a, a final question that I think you need to ask about this character, which is why this non-human character, this really out-there character is associating with the other characters in the first place. Maybe you're one of a group of outcasts and misfits. 
that's perfectly valid. I, I think we've all kind of played that character or read stories like that. You, know, you put all the weird in one group and let them go do their thing. Cool. Likewise, you could be the one character who brings something to this group of other characters that, you know, aren't that weird that they really need, but also is there to kind of be a foil and a contrast. This is Spock in Star Trek. Spock is a foil character. That's what he's for. He and Kirk play off each other and emphasize each other's strengths and weaknesses. That's the whole point. And the question of what does this character get from this relationship, what goals are being met, and what they are sacrificing for that relationship, you'll want to work out. Now, this is true for every character, regardless of how human or inhuman they are, but you're going to want to give it some thought, and you may have to write some additional unusual background, introduce new concepts, frankly, do a little bit of player-side creation of background and story and that sort of thing. Oh no, how terrible, you're helping contribute to the game. It's only basically what we recommend all the time. But you may have to do more of that than, I am playing a human. Humans are human-y. You know. Yeah, I mean, the the answers to those questions are likely to be a bit more exotic than, well, you know, this is the rest of my you know, military unit from back in the war that I'm adventuring with, or I knew these guys in school, or or even, you know, just the, the tried and true we all met in a tavern and went into the dungeon. Because if one of the player characters is a beholder, they probably didn't meet you in the tavern. Also, why are you playing right. a beholder? But Still, the answers to what are often simple questions with kind of a typical player group are likely to be a bit less simple than they usually are. Exactly. I think that's about everything we have for characters in terms of like coming up with stuff for that particular character in the fiction of the game or in the kind of the concept. Um, There are a few other considerations related to the group as a whole, like power balance. Is this thing just wildly overpowered or wildly underpowered? Both of those lead to not having fun. One is a more insidious trap than the other, but there you go. Flavor and story. If if you've been gaming for a long period of time at all, I think we've all played in a game, usually short-lived, where there was one character who was so weird that everything about the story involved that character. Anytime they went anywhere, there were massive public reactions, you know, Fright, horror, assassination, bar fights, yeah. whatever. Yeah, you know. Oh, what is that? Guards, kill it. Every single town you went to, that kind of thing. If you're playing that kind of character, either you need to work that out with the GM and the party ahead of time where it's like, oh, you get some weird looks, but we move on because you're not hogging the spotlight or the GM is not throwing the spotlight on you all the time going, well, it's very similar to You may have to scale back the weirdness. That's just the way of it. It kind of depends on who you're gaming with, if they can handle it so that everyone has fun. And then there's kind of the positive side of this, which is how is the setting influenced and made more interesting by the presence of this character and its kin, if any? If the character is neat, what are they bringing that you can then flesh out for the whole setting? Star Trek would have been a lot less interesting without Spock, not just because the character dynamics were missing, but because it fleshed out a lot of the background story of the whole setting and made it interesting and fleshed out this idea that this is a federation of different cultures and alien species who's nonetheless all barely managed to hang on together and actually harmonize most of the time. You could have had a human character like Spock who would have been just as much an emotional foil to Kirk. But wouldn't have had nearly the setting implications. Right. And those setting implications really make it fun. So I think on that note, I want to emphasize, don't shy away from it. 
you know, we've thrown out a lot of work for people to think about, but that richness is what really makes it exciting and fun. That's a large part of the cool that we talked about right at the start. That cool is, look how much this brings to the set. Well, and to bring it back around to Agiria, she came out of you having health issues that, you know, made you want to play something that could be a little more detached if you needed to. And that led to a character that kind of defines the setting in some ways. You know, it's like the, this group that you guys work for, the Wardens, they have the wherewithal to put together this artificial intelligence that can instantaneously hack into satellites, that can suppress, you know, magical effects in areas with a little bit of help from the other characters. It can do all this other neat stuff. And the fact that they've got that level of competency tells you a lot about the organization, what they're willing to do, what kind of resources they have how they're willing to put those resources to to work, who they're willing to trust in the world. That answers a lot of interesting setting questions that wouldn't have even been raised without her. So that's a very cool example of how this stuff really can inform a setting, just as long as it's done carefully. And on that note, I think we're going to wrap it up. I don't have a whole lot more to say, and I do kind of want to hear other people's thoughts before we try and delve too deeply into this one. I'm excited about next episode. That's going to be really cool. We're going to have uh, a guest back on. I'm not going to spoil who it is, but it's somebody who we've had on before. And given that we've only had awesome people on this show... Yes, we'll let you all quiver with anticipation as to who it's going to be. Exactly. I will say this is somebody that we have only had on once so far. So we'll give him that one little clue. There you go. Narrow it down a little bit. But from both Peter and myself, I want to wish you guys a great week, great two weeks going forward. And we will catch you guys next time. Yep. Have a good one, folks. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.